End of the Bad Quaker Podcast, where liberty is our mission. Today is Friday, August 30th, 2013. My name is Ben Stone, and this is podcast number 342. Now, a real quick announcement before I get into uh, into the show today. If you're concerned about uh, war, specifically war in Syria, there's a number of rallies happening all around the world, actually and probably in a town near you. And if you are a regular listener of mine, you'll know that I do not consider begging the government uh, for anything a good idea. On the other hand, if you want your voice to be heard specifically by other people, not so much by the government, but if you'd like to let other people know that you are not, in fact, in favor of killing people in Syria just because you know uh, a bunch of government murderers want to go in there and kill people, um, if you're against the war in Syria, uh, there's a number of things you can do. Specifically, Saturday, tomorrow, um, there's going to be rallies all around the world in defiance of the U.S. government's uh, deadly desire to go in and just kill people in Syria. If you're against that, and if you'd like to have a voice in this, um, maybe go to Facebook and do a search for... Um, the words, no war with Syria, or no war with Syria rally. Um, if you pretty much do any of those kinds of searches in Facebook, or you can even do that search in Google, there's all kinds of organizations that are, that are um, going out and getting together and protesting all around the world in tiny, tiny cities, tiny towns and major cities all around the world protesting uh, the U.S.'s involvement in Syria and the march towards war in Syria. So if that's something that you're passionate about, do a Google search on this, do a, a Facebook search, find out uh, what you can do, and get out there Saturday and, and, and let people know your position in this. And again, this is not to beg the U.S. government for anything. This is to let your neighbors know and let other people know exactly how you feel about the U.S. government going in and murdering people in Syria. Okay, so now to today's topic at hand. I recently had a phone call with a person that I am honored to call my friend, and that's Jeffrey Tucker, and Jeffrey was kind enough to allow me to record it and put it up for you folks to listen to. I was very pleased to talk to Jeffrey. I have been wanting to talk to him for a couple months, but he's been very busy and I've been very busy, and we just haven't been able to connect and, and spend the time together that I that I would like to. But uh, Jeffrey was kind enough to uh, allow me to record this conversation, so I'm going to share it with you. This is uh, an interview with Jeffrey Tucker. Jeffrey Tucker, welcome back to the Bad Quaker Podcast. You know, it's the most famous podcast in libertarian land, so it's, of course, an honor and a privilege and a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Those nice words. And like I was telling you before we started recording, 
you are one of my audience's favorite uh, people that I interview. You, We always get a good response whenever you come on the show, and I really appreciate having you on. And if you're new to the show, Jeffrey Tucker is uh, from over at Laissez-Faire Books, and I'm going to have a link in today's show notes that you can go directly over there to Laissez-Faire Books and uh, and see the great work that he's doing with the Laissez-Faire Club and every everything else that's going on. And I wanted to spring this on you, Jeffrey, before we really get into the main topic today. Um, there's something that I'd like to give you the opportunity to explain to my audience about. It's called the Freedom Kit Initiative, and this is not for yeah. the faint of heart. But well, this is this is this is actually an interesting thing. What happened was when Agora Financial took over Laissez Faire in 2011, um, you know, it was a gigantic warehouse of books. I mean, the largest stash of freedom-minded books you could ever imagine. So, um, and you know, we're selling them all on the site, and it's great. But we've we've actually managed to kind of figure up a bulk pricing arrangement for for people. If you want to give you know, several thousand dollars or whatever it's going to be to ship books to places where they're actually really needed and valued a lot um, around the world. I mean, a care package of books on a crate, you know, is just the greatest thing that could ever happen, you know, for, for a lot of places and a lot of people. Uh, this Freedom Kit initiative actually makes that, makes that possible, and, and we save on shipping by putting them in pallets and sending them on slow boats, you know. And we reduce the per unit price to just, you know, really really just almost a cost um and the goal is really just to get get the message out and and get valuable things to those who will value them so that's that's the idea i think we have a contact form there so if you're interested in that it's kind of a really neat way to uh really to support freedom around the around the world and that's really easy to get to. Uh, it's right on the uh, front page of uh, Laws of Fair Books. There's a button for it, or I'll put a link in today's show notes uh, to get to that. It's a whole page that explains how it works, and it, it looks like a really great thing. It's not, you know, yeah. it's not one of these uh, two or five dollar type things. It's it's a right. serious way to, if you've got the means, to right. to make a serious impact in the movement. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it's it, in so many ways. I mean, if you've got you know, you're sitting on five, ten thousand dollars. You can dump it on a nonprofit. God knows what'll happen to it then, or you can, you know, really purchase real, real books with the message of liberty, sort of a revolutionary, freedom-minded message. And you know, what books are part of the package is, you know, somewhat contingent upon our availability and what the inventories look like. But you know, essentially, Leslie Fair doesn't have any bad books. You know, so you know, you can send a, a pallet of books over to, to. uh Really anywhere you can think of, you know, Salvador, Brazil, or, or Belarus, or anywhere. And, you know, English is this sort of international language, so people are always very interested in getting English language books. I mean, they're, they're treasures. And, and it's really helpful for these virginity institutes in, in these countries because they need something to kind of attract people into their world. So having, you know, large libraries and books to give away to people is really very cool. So it, it kind of serves as a, nice basis for meetups and you know really kind of gets gets the infrastructure going and let's while we're on this topic let's explain what laissez-faire book club is and how it works also in case folks are interested in that yeah well we just we decided to distribute our ebooks essentially and our audiobooks on a subscription model rather than trying to sell them one off so you pay uh, i think it's ten dollars a month and then um, you get all the all the books that we publish and we're publishing them on a regular basis plus you get other things like one of the things that I, I find enormously challenging, but 
but rewarding. You know, it's this kind of job that I don't want to do, but once I've done it, I'm really, really glad I did. It's like practicing piano or something. Um, I, I do summaries of, of books. I'll, I'll take a book and summarize it in um, three or four pages that takes you 12 minutes to read. And it's a completely different kind of writing than I've ever done my entire life. Because, you know, I've done promotional writing, I've done reviews, you know, evaluative writing, and, you know, just sort of opinion pieces that are taking off on some content of a book. But to actually reduce the contents of a book to, you know, 12 minutes is really a, a, a challenge. It's an intellectual challenge to find, you know, the top 10 takeaways of one book, you know, just... To, to give away everything that's in the book in the course of, you know, 2,000 words is quite tricky. I mean, it, it causes me to have to read very, very carefully. And what it invariably happens in these cases, because I, I do these things every two weeks, is I get whipped up into a kind of a frenzy over whatever I happen to be reading at the time and end up posting it all over the place and concluding this is the most important book I ever read. I mean, it's part of my... Maybe you can call it a, a psychosis or something, <laughs> what, an eccentricity or whatever. But I, but it's really I'm really glad for the gig in a way because it forces me to just dig around. I think a lot of book reviewers don't really read the books, um, and I, I say that, you know, having read, you know, you know, even New York Times reviewers. You know, I I read reviews all the time of books I've read and think this guy didn't read past the introduction. You know, well. And it's a temptation for people, you know, just to not take the book seriously. So when I do these book summaries, it, you know, you can imagine it's absolutely required that I grapple with every single idea in the book, you know, very, very carefully and in great detail. And it's, so it's a kind of intellectual workout for me. And I appreciate that. I mean, I think all of us are, you know, have a tendency toward intellectual laziness. You know, we fall back on the things we know. We don't want to be challenged with new ideas. So for me, it's a kind of a nice, like I'm speaking very selfishly here. Uh, it's a, it's a nice regimen, you know, that, that requires that I really stretch myself and get to know subjects I don't know anything about, discover ideas and try to think, think seriously about things that I might be predisposed to disagree with, <clears throat> you know. So this is part of what I get to do. And of course, for the consumer, you know, this is just a, like a no brainer piece of value here, right? So you can read the 12-minute summary and decide whether or not you want to dig into the book or maybe if you feel like you've gotten all you wanted. I mean, our time is scarce, so that's, this, these things, these little commodities have real value. Yeah, they really do. Uh, you know, to sit down for a lot of people that are running a tight schedule, you know, they've got a 30-minute a, a commute each way to work and, you know, they've got uh, a full basket, maybe a young family and, and you know, they, a lot of them just don't have the time to sit down and spend four or five hours or six hours to read a good book. Oh, yeah. And yeah. and this is just a wonderful opportunity for somebody to get enough of an idea to to let them know either yeah they do want to buy it or they want to get their hands on it and they want to have it in the, on their shelf, or well it's nice to know that now I can move on I don't really need that book. And you know what's what's really funny funny Ben I I just I'd love to talk to you some about this sometime when you know you and I had this kind of epic conversations whenever we're sitting at bars together. Uh, we should talk about this sometime, but I. I'm intrigued. Uh, well, like this week, I'm, I'm doing, <clears throat> uh, just summarized a Lou Lehrman book on the gold standard. Okay. That was a very interesting task for me because I hadn't read the book and it's never been an ebook form and I really enjoyed it. But last week, I did Rothbard's America's Great Depression. Okay. Now, 
most people think that we already know what's in that book. I mean, it's been around since 1963. It's gone through six different editions. You know, it's everywhere. Um, how could we not know what's in that book? And, you know, we all think we can summarize it in a matter of sentences. At least I thought that I could have summarized it in a matter. But I thought, well, you know, I need to just not be lazy here. I'm going to go through the book. Well, I found in that book some things I never knew were there. Uh, just a completely different take on the response of the macroeconomic environment to a kind of deleveraging crisis, which is what the Great Depression was. And and yeah, what's funny about this book is it's so prescient. As you go through it, you realize this the, the, the years 1929 to about 1934 were kind of a template for how the economy behaved between about 2007 and, uh, and the current, and the current times. I mean, it follows it just blow by blow. And I realized that if I had read this, you know, say in 2007, I mean, really read it, not just read the summaries or the, you know, the Amazon blurbs or whatever, really dug into it, I would have discovered, uh, things I never knew, I never knew before. And, and wouldn't have made some bad predictions I made actually at the time. Um, it's 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 really a, a seriously meaty book that defies your expectations. A lot of times, I think in our world, we think we know what's in these books because they're sort of legendary. You know, uh, they become part of the canon. It's always kind of a bad thing in some ways when the book becomes part of the canon because what it means is people don't read it and they stop learning from it. They think, I think they know what's in it, you know, and it's, it's quite often not true. It's certainly not true in the case of America's Great Depression. I found so many jewels of, of wisdom and such um, rigorous analytics and the empirical data he mustered. I was just, I was just blown away, truly. And this is after having you know, swam in this lake, you know, for, 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 for the better part of 20 years. And to pick up a book and read it in detail and discover things you never knew were there is quite humbling. I'm going to have to dig that off the shelf and dust it off and get back into it. This is the second uh, uh, mention of that book that I've seen, I think, just in the last couple of days. Yeah. Uh, I believe Krugman, Krugman um, uh, quoted Milton Freeman... Uh, attacking Murray Rothbard using mm-hmm. his statements in that book, but uh, as I recall, he made like a, uh, a straw man argument to attack yeah, Murray. Yeah, no, yeah, in fact, I wonder. I wonder whether if Friedman ever read it. Actually, yeah, I, I would mean, doubt it. I would really doubt it. I mean, like his, his empirical demonstration of the inflation from the late nineteen uh, twenties up to the stock market crashes incontrovertible. I mean, it's not just speculative. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like he took the M one and threw. Um, Life into cash value of life insurance policies into it. No, it's very detailed and scientific. And there's another thing that really surprised me about it. I guess this is what I'm really I'm referring to is that Rothbard lays out a general sort of prediction there that in the event of a kind of radical deleveraging following a boom, um, the central bank is going to be largely disabled in its capacity to inflate the money supply no matter what it does. So Rothbard shows that the central bank was rather desperate, you know, between 1930 and all the way to 34, whenever the book stops, <clears throat> to inflate the money supply. They keep uh, loosening credit terms, uh, lowering interest as, as much as possible, buying bonds like, like crazy, pumping uh, all the main banks with, you know, new reserves and everything else. They were trying to manufacture uh, an inflation uh, all they ended up doing was saving the banks, and 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 prices kept falling. I mean, the deflationary pressure was was too intense, 
And Rothbard points out in the in the book that the Fed is actually we're talking about in the early 1930s had far less power than people believed. You know, it 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 has the the power to to manage reserves, but it cannot manage the demand for money, and uh, you know, therefore, its uh, velocity. That's entirely in the hands of, of of the public, and people's decisions over how they're going to handle their money is very much determined by their outlook and their psychology. And in the case of an economic bust, uh, people are going to tend to be extremely cautious about taking out loans. And, and in fact, in back, in the, back in the day, people were taking their money out of the banks and just sticking it in the mattress. But if you do that, what you've done is basically disabled the tool, the main tool that the Fed uses to inflate the money supply, which is the banking and credit system. That's the way the system works. If people aren't using the system, the Fed can't make it happen. And so he goes through this, you know, like in great detail with, with, you know, really vivid language and very clear exposition on why no matter how, how much new, how much in the way of new reserves the Fed may create, it still cannot manufacture a real uh, recovery. It can't manufacture certainly a price inflation, even if it wanted to, because of, because of the way the, the system is structured. Well, that's pretty much a good description of what happened, you know, after 2008. Uh, and I think if I had read that, I wouldn't have given speeches about the coming hyperinflation, for example. You know, I mean, the Austrians have been raked over the coals over the last uh, three or four years for all these kind of faulty predictions of, of the coming hyperinflation. Um, if we had read our Rothbard, we would have, I think, known better than to than to anticipate that. Hmm. You see what I mean? Yeah, and part of the, part of the, his point there is kind of falls back on Mises a little bit because uh, what we're talking about is central planning and the flaws uh, that you're pointing out there in in the the Fed's ability to control the uh, in, in, during the early part of the depression was based on the fact that central planning is flawed as as a process by itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know I. Th- I think you make an excellent point. And why is it flawed? It's because the planners can't really anticipate everything that people are going to do. And I, I'm more and more kind of formulating a, a, a sense of things in my mind that, uh, you know, central planning is literally impossible in the sense that, like, no matter how much the elites might believe they've anticipated every conceivable workaround to their plan. Human beings in their sort of decentralized capacity to rethink their lives are capable of finding a few things that the elites haven't found. And it doesn't take much to unravel everything that they're, they're doing. And I think this general principle, uh, probably applies throughout the whole of our social and economic life. I mean, ultimately, they try to control everything. But they can't control everything. And in that sense, you know, central plans depend on total control. And if they don't achieve it, in a, in a way, they've controlled nothing, you know? Um, and, and, and it points to something very interesting, I think, that should make liberty lovers optimistic. We've got to get better at finding those workarounds, finding those loopholes, finding those, those unplugged, you know, sources of life. And energy 
in um, the economic world and chasing them down, exploiting them to our own personal benefit, using them to create new products, to consume new things, to adopt new ways of living. If we do this, we can we can ultimately outsmart and outwit uh, the elites who, acting as elites in such small minorities, are almost, by in a Hayekian sense, stupider than the whole of the social order. You know, that is cooperating in a sort of decentralized sharing way to outsmart the government. And I think that's really the, the reason why history stays on its, on its progressive track, uh, ultimately. Yeah, I was having sort of a, a, a television version in my mind rolling through uh, mm. of a commercial. There's a commercial on TV now for some luxury car company where they're convincing, they're attempting to convince their audience that uh, smaller cars are now the new luxury cars. <laughs> And they're comparing them to these dinosaurs that are trying to, you know, dinosaurs that are trying to parallel park and accidentally break off fire plugs and so forth, where their little, uh, their little nimble car zips in and out of the dinosaur's legs and goes and does what it wants to do. But in a real sense, it's kind of like this. The central planners are like a big, lumbering, slow, uh, stupid dinosaur. And we're more like, if you could use that comparison, we're more like mice. Run individuals running yeah. around and doing this and that. And, and at some point in time, you know, I really believe that the time of the dinosaurs is going to pass and the time of the individual mouse is going to stand up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's, there's one thing the central planners are all stuck in the past, which is a very interesting thing. I think there's a specific reason for that. Um, whereas the social order is always thinking about, you know, the next thing, the next thing. And you see this in, in uh, almost every, every area of life. I mean, all the way down from the, pe- you know, the ridiculous and the petty to the, to the big and the grand. I mean, the fact that you and I are able to do what we're doing right now with this conversation, you know, we're using Skype is by itself something that nobody ever planned. I mean, it, it, it kind of, re- you know, represents a disruptive technology in a beautiful way. But just an hour ago, Ben, I was, um, Drove a few miles down the road to um, a, a tobacco store, and when I'm out of town, which I'm planning to go to Libertopia, I always like to take cigarettes with me. Right, so <clears throat> so I walk in. They have these things, these these uh, cigarettes that are not subject to federal mandates, so they don't include all the ghastly, gluey chemicals that they put in. Um, and because they're, you know, untaxed, they are able to put higher quality tobacco and put, pack it much more tightly. The reason they're untaxed is they're able to, because they wrap them in tobacco paper rather than, um, regular paper. So they're able to be called cigars rather than cigarettes. I and mean, the bottom line is that you get these extremely high quality cigarettes for about a buck twenty a pack, which is, you know, something like, um, fifth. A fifth of what you pay for a cigarette. Yeah. <clears throat> it's a very interesting case to me because, you know, that whole thing that you've had going on for the last 20 years or maybe 50 years about cigarettes represents a kind of a, a perfect central plan from the federal government. They wanted to mag- get maximum revenue while discouraging um, smoking, you know. Um, I, I mean, they thought they had everything worked out. Everything was perfect. And yet I was able to drive, you know, a couple of miles down the road and get these, this fabulous product. I mean, it's a brilliant product, completely bypassing every mandate, nearly every mandate, you know, this, that we've seen imposed for the last 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, how is this possible? I mean, it's amazing. I said to the lady, I said, how long is this going to be legal? She goes, 
Well, I don't know, but we're glad to sell them as long as they are. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I just use that as an example, but um, sometimes small examples like that illustrate the bigger point. Um, Ultimately, the people have more power than, than the government. I think that's a very helpful thing for us to remember so we don't become despairing and, 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 and pessimistic and, and, uh, consumed by the ghastliness of Leviathan. I think it's okay to be angry, to be furious and to have a, a, a profound sense of injustice of all the terrible things the government does. And it's all true. But at the same time, we also have to, we have to develop a, an eye for the brilliance of the social order to persist despite every attempt to control it and guide it and direct it. And we should be inspired by that. We should be inspired and we should be um, seeking to join, you know, the uh, the disobedient, uh, seeking to, to join the class of the disruptors. We need to find ways to break bad in whatever way we can. Um, because, because by that very action, by these actions, we're helping ourselves achieve more liter- liberty, uh, live uh, more liberty, but also um, helping others. I mean, it's a, like a like a, it's an act of beneficence to the social order, which which has to be free in order to progress. I've talked quite a few times, uh, maybe too many times, about something that just fascinates me, and that is the explosion of food wagons and food trucks where uh, brick-and-mortar restaurants are actually so burdened with regulation and inspections and and the bribes that they have to pay out really is what we're talking about. And they just shut down their brick-and-mortar restaurant, and for a fraction of the price and without all of the, you know, without all the inspections and the problems that come with it, they just have a truck and they tweet or whatever and they drive around and their customers know where they're going to be by use of, of, uh, of, you know, the new media. And, uh, right. they just pop up in a, in a parking lot and the customers swarm in and get their lunch. They get it quick. They get good food. And, you know, maybe taxes get paid. Maybe they don't. Right. Yeah. No, I know. It's funny. I, I'm glad you mentioned this because I've been meaning to kind of chase down. Uh, the story of these food trucks. I, I'm, that's a really great summary you just gave. You'd probably just saved me a lot of research. Um, but I wrote an article for the Freeman recently about the shaved ice, ice trucks and just what a brilliant entrepreneurial sort of venture it is, you know. Um, just how much knowledge and technology is involved in knowing where to take this truck to sell um, kids or adults or whomever, you know, shaved ice with flavoring in it, and just how lucrative it is, and what a brilliant enterprise it is, and how capital intensive it all is. I mean, it's it's and how much it kind of outsmarts, uh, you know, any government planning agency. This is you know, small companies, and they have to be sort of extremely wise and cunning and knowing the the community. Oh, I, I got to tell you, Ben, when I wrote that article, so. Um, part of my point was that institutions like FEMA, when they show up into your local community following a natural disaster, can't possibly have that level of understanding and knowledge and, and discrete, you know, sort of information about where everything is and, and what people are like and, you know, what possibilities out there that the local merchants have. And the merchants are the, 
the brilliant people on the ground. So I just out of nowhere got a note from somebody at FEMA who said, thank you so much for this article. It really, really captivated me. I never thought about it like this. So I sent it around to all my colleagues that here at FEMA. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then you decide the FEMA is not necessary and then you quit or I don't, I don't know how the story ends. <laughs> Wouldn't that be terrific? I mean, that's a total fantasy, but wouldn't that be terrific if 60 or 70% of the employees at FEMA realized, uh, how, what a silly job they have and just quit and decided to do real work? You know, it's funny. I, I've often wondered how many people work for the government that are just ultimately demoralized and sort of cynical about the whole thing. I mean, we've all known people who work for the government and they say, yeah, and they, they actually exceed our own anti-government sense of things because they, they have to live and see and breathe this machine and they hate it, you know. I wonder what percentage of people feel that way. I think probably a lot of people have they quit their jobs, but they're still showing up and receiving a paycheck, paycheck, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and actually from a – in a sense, I've kind of tried to encourage government employees to do that. Just, you know, sit right there. Yeah. Um, gum up the works. Let, especially if you work for somebody like the IRS or yeah. you know anybody like that, any of the more nasty agencies. Keep that job. Sit there. Gum up the works. Make sure that because they can't fire you unless you do something really, it's really true. bad. Yeah, no, it's true. In fact, if it's 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 fascinating to me how you can. If you want to hear a tirade against the, the IRS, just hang outside the building during lunch during lunch hour and go up to some random employee who's eating a sandwich sitting by himself and say, how do you like uh, working here? You'll get an earful. Wouldn't that be a great uh, interview? Yeah. <laughs> if you could get them to do it anonymously and, and not worry about their job. Yeah, uh, the problem is the, the camera once it turns on. But, you know, look, um, I think what this discussion leads to is a kind of a, a really a profound observation. We always want to know who the enemy is. You know, like who, who is, who or what is keeping liberty at bay? And I don't think it's entirely accurate to just say the bureaucrats. I don't think that really captures the essence of the problem we're dealing with. Really, they are themselves part of a kind of a, of a structure of a system that they themselves don't control. You know, right. they, they quite often took these positions because it was the best thing, you know, available and they get stuck, you know, uh, after being there a couple of years, uh, you know, the benefits for staying an extra year, you make these choices on the margin, you know, they're very intense and very high and so they stay um, and, you know, basically they live unhappy lives. Um, but if they left, they'll be replaced by, by somebody else. So um, I think we we can get carried away and and blaming you know, all the problems on the nation state on the individual flesh and blood holders of the bureaucratic offices. Really, the problem is more fundamental. It's the law and the structure of regulation and legislation under which they operate that empowers the bureaucracy. It's the code books. It's the U.S. code. It's those 800,000 volumes or whatever it's up to now. Uh, that's just this big legal, this big cruft, you know, this, this big monstrous mountain of anachronistic, ossified central plans, you know, that we still, we, we still, uh, obey. Um, even if it doesn't help anybody, even if nobody really likes it, even if everybody agrees it's stupid, we allow our civilization to be controlled by 
by all this old apparatus, this legacy content of the past, quite often our oppressors are all dead already. They're the people who wrote this crap generations ago. And we still abide by it. You know, this is, in a way, that's kind of a terrifying thought, but it's also liberating because you realize just how artificial it really all is and how it could all be just sort of made to vanish in an instant. Uh, it really can, um, because what we're talking about here is the general faith that the, that people uh, all around the world have that this this big, this major process, the state, is actually good and functions and does what it's supposed to, and it's all a faith-based thing. Yeah. And the thing about when a person loses faith... You know, and and we both come from a, a religious background, so uh, so you know what exactly what I'm talking about. When a person gets to the point of where they lose the, the faith in whatever it is that they've held holy in you know in their minds, and then they then they that's that shattered under whatever circumstances caused that, they utterly reject that thing, and. I, I can't help but to believe that as more and more people see the state for what it really is, their faith in it becomes shattered, and and there's no returning. There's no going back and saying, well, yeah, I guess you know I realized it was f- all fake and all false, uh, but let's have it anyway. You know, once that faith in the state is shattered, it's gone. They can't they yeah. can't revive it. Well, you know, it's really a question. I think I think Spooner really kind of put his, his finger on it. It's like, why, why should we be ruled by this, by these, by this document uh, signed so long ago by people long dead? I never signed it. It's a similar situation with our law and regulations that sort of ruin and that rule and ruin our lives. You know, uh, n- nobody alive was responsible for passing the Espionage Act, for example. Right. Um, Jeffrey, let me uh, break here and we'll throw in a commercial and uh, uh, take just a moment and we will uh, come right back with more with Jeffrey Tucker. And I want to ask Jeffrey about a trip he took recently, and I'm sure he's going to have a, a good story to tell us about that. Folks, there's only a finite supply of gold and silver in the world. However, politicians can print paper on a whim forever and ever. Hedge yourself against inflation and a volatile stock market by purchasing gold and silver bullion from Amagai Metals. As inflation gets worse, it will become more difficult to buy gold and silver. So secure your financial freedom today by visiting amagimetals.com. That's A-M-A-G-I-M-E-T-A-L-S dot com. Or you can give them a call at 1-800-882-8496. That's 1-800-882-8496, where financial freedom is yours. And be sure and tell them badquaker.com sent you. How would you like to do something to support BadQuaker.com? Here's how easy it is. If you're already going to buy something from Amazon, go to BadQuaker.com first. Click on any of the buttons for Amazon. Once at Amazon, shop like you normally would. You'll pay the same price for the things you buy from Amazon, but Amazon will give BadQuaker.com a tiny portion of that purchase. It's amazingly easy to shop at Amazon. It won't cost you any extra, and you'll be supporting BadQuaker.com. Thank you. Thanks for sticking with us through the break. Uh, ben Stone with Jeffrey Tucker. 
And Jeffrey, uh, you know, I, I, when I first found out that you were going to go to the Vatican and speak, I was very excited. I'm not a Catholic, but I recognize the value in having an audience like that and to be able to at least express some of our message in a way that's going to live for a very long time in in the archives and be respected by some very important people. Uh, tell my audience um, what happened, how that went, and some of the fun parts that happened too. Yeah, so it was. Yeah, the trip was so revealing and so interesting. I, <clears throat> I mean, the 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 big moment was of course my speech, and you know there were probably five bishops there and you know three cardinals and you know countless pastors and seniors and you know all all sorts of you know, high officials and heads of monasteries and this packed house. And it was really interesting and a little intimidating because I feel like I had to say something important. Basically, I went there, I accepted the gig, and I was asked to go as a, to in order to support the open source theory of, of, of publishing. But it's, it goes beyond publishing. It's, it's, it's supporting open source as a model for, for management. Um, an effective model for management that's um, doesn't use the state. So the the topic here is something I truly love, which is Gregorian chant. And um, my short history that I put in the paper was that uh, in the paper that I presented was that Gregorian chant was was invented almost like a folk music in the early part of the apostolic period as a way of conveying stories uh, had no particular author to it it, it, it uh, uh, no particular composer nobody signed them or anything they emerged very much organically as a way of story t- storytelling in a time when um, literacy was the norm and there was no way there's no way to transport music through, through paper because it wasn't any way to, to print um, but <clears throat> Ben this is very interesting you know for the first thousand years after the beginning of Christianity uh, nobody knew how to write music. Uh, nobody had invented the the staff uh, yet. Actually, that came that the staff, the musical staff, allowed you to port music around from place to place uh, without having a teacher present. It was invented in the 11th century. Actually, it was one of the great inventions of all time. Um, but anyway, um, the chant grew and flourished as a purely open source music. So that it was never obviously under copyright. There were no legal restrictions on its on its on its sharing. In fact, the, a legal restriction on its sharing would have violated the whole purpose. Uh, uh, the music exists in the realm of ideas, which is say which is to say it's a non-scarce good. Um, so it's capable of being universally pervasive and infinitely reproduced, and. Therefore, transported across the ages. So the music that I could sing, you know, to you right now in the form of a grand chant was actually a remarkable thing because, let's say, it was it was, it was written in third century, uh, you know, passed to, to the fourth, fifth, and sixth, and seventh, and eighth, and it was finally codified and written down by the eleventh century. Uh, comes all the way up to the present age. I mean, this little, a little small tune out of the Gregorian repertoire has lasted more than any existing nation state on earth. That's an immortal thing. Um, so I wanted to kind of explain why and how that happened in absence of, of copyright. I mean, that sounds like maybe those are different subjects, but they're not different subjects because when the Gregorian chant came to be, um, rediscovered and 
purified in some way to its, say, 12th, 13th century origins uh, or editions uh, in the late 19th century, that happened exactly at the same time that copyright law became um, universal. You know, it was, it was the Berne Convention. And this is a travesty. So by 1907, to get all the great modern books of Gregorian Chant coming out, they were all copyrighted by the individual publishers. And it, and it severely hurt the spread of, 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 of chant. I mean, in other words, the very opposite of the goal. The goal was to universalize Gregorian chant, make it available to the whole world using modern printing methods and uh, modern scholarship to reconstruct their purest form. Uh, and so the books were released and they were all, you know, uh, put under copyright. And that became a convention. And it severely restricted their um, their distribution in the worst uh, conceivable way. I mean, it was a by by mid mid of the middle of the 20th century, there was practically a reign of terror over chasing down uh, copyright of infringers over the Gregorian chant. If you can believe it, I know that sounds shocking to you, but it's it's just true. This is part of part of the sort of grim history. Until about six years ago, I finally just <clears throat> kind of got fed up with the whole reign of terror and threw all the chant books on the line online myself. I did this and um, just kind of liberated all the Gregorian chants in, into the comments. And it was a move that was considered to be revolutionary, anarchistic, reckless, irresponsible, probably <laughs> illegal, and so on. <laughs> but in the intervening six or seven years, we've seen some amazing things happen. Now you can go to your iPhone and download all kinds of Gregorian chant applications that show you chant, that play you chant, that, you know, dictate chant, that give you instant lessons on your iPad and God knows what. You, you there, there are, there are tens of thousands of YouTubes now up with Gregorian chant, all because of this one act of liberating the chant into the comments. And so this had turned out to be very compelling to some very influential people in the Catholic Church, just to watch the unfolding of this. And they realized that there were certain things they hadn't taken account of and certain forces at work they didn't entirely understand. I mean, from the Catholic Church point of view, maybe it's difficult to understand this, but so many institutions think that, like their goal is control. That's the main thing they want to do. Like, they've got a service or a product and they feel like they're being irresponsible if they don't control its expression and distribution. That's They identify that with the exercise of their office in some way. So, of course, they reach for the closest weapon, and that's copyright. But this is a disaster because, essentially, in this world, you face a, cho- a choice between influence and control. The more you try to... Uh, control something, the less influence that something is going to have on the course of history. You know, those are the great lessons of, of, of liberalism. And so I, try, I, I went there to explain this to, to people, um, essentially to try to persuade the Catholic Church to stop using copyright. If it believed in its message, if it believes in its art forms, if it believes in its liturgy and its prayers, set them free. You know, l- let them loose. Uh, the use of copyright on, on religious texts and art is only about a hundred year old practice. You know, out of 2000 years, it's only been used in the last hundred years and it hasn't gone so well, actually. 
so I was urging them to take a radical step and, and put put everything into the commons and and let loose that that uh, that controlling impulse, that sort of hierarchical top down uh, desires that uh, that content owners have, and just just let it go and, and see what happens. And I assured them that that beautiful, surprising, wonderful things can happen if you're willing to. Uh, to to go this go this route. So that was that was the basis of my paper. I think it was fairly well received. Um, whether or not it's going to change anything, I don't know. I have noticed some slight um, steps in the right direction over the last three or four years, but um, I just want to push that much further. And Ben, if you think about it, it just doesn't make any sense uh, why any religious body would ever take recourse to the state to restrict the distribution of this message. Can you imagine such a thing? I, I, I view this, and this has fascinated me, uh, this whole story for as long as I've known about it, but I view this as one of the, the greatest victories that we have accomplished. You have something here. You, uh, you have an accomplishment of humanity, which is this beautiful art form that, in my opinion, is, is one of the greatest accomplishments of humanity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it, and it, and it was free and it flowed for so long. And then the clutches of the state, the tentacles of the state, found a way right. to choke it down and hold it down. But the and for a hundred years that worked. But you know, um, all it takes is a rebel lighting a fuse, and I don't mean that in a, in a destructive way. But all it takes is somebody to just ignore the rules and do what they know is right in their heart, and we do this in humanity a million times a day with a million different, probably a billion times a day with a billion different things that humans just ignore the rules and do what, what is right in their heart. And, and it releases the beauty of things like chant that have been, uh, captivated, uh, held captive by the state and 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 then it it can't be it's using the old genie in the bottle uh, uh you you can't put it back in they can't no. they can't get back control of it now no and i even even myself when i when i put that stuff when i put that stuff online and i think maybe six or seven years now ago now um i didn't anticipate what would result i mean i i just this morning on a site called the new liturgical movement i was posting uh, the sun poppers for this coming week and the extraordinary form of the, of the Roman rites. There's five very, very beautiful pieces of music. I very quickly, with a Google search, was able to turn up some historic recordings from the 1950s and 60s of, of these of these very chants that pertain to the liturgical year, you know, three days from now, four days from now, and post them and embed them on a website. I mean, this is made possible only because of this release into the comments that I did. Uh, six or seven years ago, I would never could have anticipated that. You know, I, it's it's all a matter of kind of you have to learn to anticipate being surprised. You have to grow comfortable knowing that there's a ton of stuff you don't know and acting on the existing information you have anyway, and then looking forward to being shocked and alarmed and amazed by by what happens. Uh, Jeffrey, do you mind if I ask you about the recent uh, incident where you were misquoted by a lot of the mainstream media in reference to the news? That was, that was very funny. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 um, 
Yeah, it was, it was just a funny case. Actually, actually, it's, <clears throat> I'd love for the Washington Post to call me sometime about politics, but somehow or economics, but somehow that never happened. So they end up getting getting quoted on religion uh, more often than not. And I had written an article um, grousing about some aspects of uh, the media's treatment of of the new pope, you know. And um, yeah, I mean, my words were right there. The, the whole thing was an attack on the kind of paradigm. See, the, his thing is. Here's the thing, Ben. <clears throat> you know how the, the press, when it covers uh, politics, it's annoying because it always it wants to treat every single idea as either left-wing or right-wing. And it, it drives us crazy as libertarians because, you know, we don't fit into either category. Right. And we get – it's just irritating how simplistic, you know, the, these categories are. <clears throat> they, there's like the, – the media draws a template, you know. It's like you have to fit into one category category or another, and they just ignore everything else. But it's the same way when they cover religion. <clears throat> so the uh, conventions is that Benedict XVI was a right-wing pope and Francis is a left-wing pope. And that's basically it. I mean, it's not any more complicated than that. And nothing that happens can can fit outside of that. You know, that's just the way everything is reported. So when I wrote – uh, about my annoyance with certain aspects of the way the new papacy has been treated in the, in the press. Um, a wire service article quoted me as an example of a right-wing Catholic upset about the dramatic changes the new pope is making. <laughs> you know, and I look at this and, it, and I described it as an out-of-body experience, you know, because this, this article was printed in, I don't know, Dozens of venues. Uh, like I say, the Washington Post is one, but I mean, it's just, it was all over the place. And I'm seeing my name attached to these words. I'm seeing certain thoughts attributed to me, and they spelled my name right. Uh, you know, and they, they quoted the article, more or less, that I wrote. But they had me saying something completely almost opposite of what I And, you know, at some point, you know, you just can't get mad. You just laugh, you know. Um, you just have to laugh about it because it's so preposterous. You know, sometimes I think the whole media culture is just it's just kind of a big circus, you know, where you just have these clowns and everybody's playing scripted roles and stuff. And it doesn't make any sense to get mad about it, you know, really. I, I it was it was absurd, uh, essentially. But I didn't even I didn't even bother to write the reporter. Because I, I assume that he probably knew better, but he's got editors and the editors believe they have readers and, and advertisers and they want everything to be really coherent you know even if that means just glossing over any kind of complexities i uh, i ran into this you know uh, we went up to the michigan uh, michigan peace and liberty coalition's uh, liberty fest that they had mm. up there and right before i went up i thought <clears throat> i wonder how that went with jeffrey at the at the vatican so i did a basic google search yeah. to try to you know with the words jeffrey tucker and vatican and a couple other keywords and i thought well this this ought to bring up uh you know something and all I found was page after page of what was clearly a distortion of what you had said. Right. Right. And there was people that were so angry that were quote, who is this Jeffrey? Ch what gives him the right to attack the Pope? And I thought, you have got to be kidding me. How, what are these people thinking? It was so funny. It's so funny. That's exactly what it was. They had me, they had me. Quoting the Pope. And in my language, the language that I had I was using was a little bit <clears throat> pointed in some way. But if you looked at what I said carefully, I wasn't actually attacking the Pope. Not that there would be anything wrong with that, by the way. But I, it just so happened that I wasn't, you know. 
but boy, I tell you what, that was that was really something. It's I don't know, you know, you, you just you have to look at a case like that, and if it ever happens to you, you develop a kind of fundamental skepticism about about everything that you read that appears in the mainstream press because you really don't know what's true. You don't know if the writer has an agenda, you know, these, and um, whether the people they're quoting really meant to say what they said or not. I, I finally, I wrote a response to it, but I, you know, I was actually rather calm about the whole thing. I mean, given how pervasive that was, it, it, um, you know, I guess when I was younger, I might have, you know, just had a heart attack or something. But this time, I just laughed and and uh, poured up a martini and went on. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, I have to tell you something that you might find interesting. It doesn't doesn't pertain to anything um, related to our usual topics, but I thought you might find it interesting. Um, something, I, I mean, just, just cause I think you might be interested. So when I was at the Vatican, um, I had for some time been in kind of frequent contact with, you know, it's such a strange place. I'm worried about how much I can say without, yeah, I don't think it's a problem. I'm just not going to give any names. Okay. But I, <clears throat> but I've been, I've been in long time contact with, uh, how should I say, a very influential figure um, within uh, the, the Vatican's musical structure that provides music for the daily office of, of Compline and Vespers and that sort of thing. So um, a very seemingly powerful man um, at the height of his career. And we had been kind of frequent contact, just we've become friends, you know. And so when I went there, he invited me uh, to go to his offices um, so, I mean, it's pretty unusual, actually, to get invited behind, you know, the, get past the Swiss guards and get into the Vatican itself. So that was an, uh, kind of a remarkable thing. And it was amusing to me because uh, the Swiss guards are, are uh, yeah, maybe the nicest guys in the world, but in their official role, they're just nothing but, but uh, menacing in some ways, you know. So, uh I walked up to them and I said, hey, can I have a picture with you? And they, you know, sort of gruff and no, you can't have a picture with us. And I, I stood there anyway and got a picture with them and they were kind of sneering at me and everything else. And uh, so I was kind of toying with them and being amused by their serioso, you know, sort of uh, way, especially given that they're, you know, wearing these outfits designed by Michelangelo, you know, and it's a little bit, the whole thing is a little bit, a little bit ridiculous. Um, but anyway, so then the guy who who had invited me to his offices emerges, you know, from the hallowed walls and says, oh, Jeffrey, come on over here. You know, and so then I was he waved me in. I was able to just walk right past these guys, you know, who weren't even letting me take their pictures. And so they were extremely annoyed. Right? <laughs> who is this jerk? You know, so um, anyway, so I got taken back there and I got to see the the. You know, I mean, walk the halls of, of, you know, essentially the Vatican bureaucracy, you know, and, and see the various offices and things. And, and it really shocked me. Uh, I had maybe in my sort of mind imagined sort of palatial headquarters, you know, just, you know, marble everywhere and luxurious facilities and, you know, the best of the best. I mean, I'm telling you, this place looks like a, like a, like a rural public school built in the 1950s or something. Wow. It's, it's not impressive at all. Everything is undersized. The elevators barely work. There's dust all over the place. Um, everybody's overworked and, and underpaid and, 
uh, in the Vatican, you know, it's just pervasive of politics and nobody feels comfortable ever. So people are always worried, you know, when you're sitting in your office and the door handle shakes, you think, oh, you know, what's going to happen now? Um, people are always having to watch the backs. And it's just that kind of institution, right? It's a bureaucracy. So um, I, enjoy, I enjoyed my time there. I was able to sit in the rooms where the choirs rehearsed before Vespers and Compliment and these sorts of things. And they were, they were tiny. I mean, they're, they're shoving like 50 singers into a space smaller than my kitchen, you know, at my home. Uh, just, just ridiculous. And the director, you know, the director's having to make all of his own copies and, you know, every, everybody, everything's kind of crazy. I mean, people make enormous sacrifices to work, uh, for the church. Uh, that's all I can conclude from that. It was really quite something. Anyway. Um, I'm probably going along too long with the story, but I just want to tell you one quick last anecdote. So the 500th anniversary of the choir he directs was in 2013. So he minted these kind of special cups uh, to commemorate this 500th anniversary. But right before the date came up, um, a message came down from a superior uh, that was somehow really hooked into the power structure of the Holy See that forbid him, you know, on the penalty of excommunication by order of the Pope or the rest of it, from celebrating the 500th anniversary of his choir because there had been a recent discovery of a document that has shown that, the, in fact, the 500th anniversary was last year. So this would be an act of, of great fraud and whatever to, to do this and forbid him from... from from doing anything for the 500th anniversary. I, I know this sounds ridiculous to you, right? And it was ridiculous, uh, especially since, the, you know, the document in question that was found was, was you know, something that's easily, easily disputable. But anyway, so he had these cups. And so he told me the story. He was telling me the story, and he went to the closet, and he grabbed one of these mugs out, and he, you know, looked on both, you know, behind his back, on either side, left, right, and said, here, I want you to have this. So he gave me this, this, this mug. And it made me put it in, his, in my bag uh, and zip up my bag. And, and as we walked, you know, down the elevators and down the sort of musty hallways and got into the car, and even when we were driving past the Swiss guards on the way out of the Vatican, he was personally terrified that somebody would find this mug on my person. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> that is amazing. It's a weird world. I'm telling you, it's a very strange world. <laughs> oh. So I know that story has nothing to do with anything, but I thought you, you would be amused by it. It's not not very often you get a kind of you know back uh, backstage look at uh, uh, hugely significant events in the in Holy Mother Church, as they say. <laughs> oh wow, a Jeffrey Tucker mug stealer. <laughs> Exactly. I, I happen to treasure that darn thing now, you know, because I should put a picture on Facebook. Actually, I, I can't do that. It would get away from all about it. But I hope you don't have any too many too many um, members of the Vatican bureaucracy to listen to your shit. <laughs> They'll be able to connect the dots, given all the information I've received. Oh my, <laughs> that's wonderful. That is really that's that's an, that's kind of an act of anarchism in a in a very odd way. <laughs> very strange. Oh, very strange. No, it was a wonderful trip. And, of course, I got to see Rome. 
and um, you know, pay too high prices uh, for everything that I bought. Of course, as every tourist in, in Rome does, because we don't know the, you know, the, the language, we don't know the, the culture, we don't know anything. But but it was it was a blast and walking around those streets and you know, it's just Rome is just really interesting. I was really ready to go um, after about six days. I, I have a, uh, I, I love new things and I love I love capital. I love to see prosperity booming, and if those are the things you love, Rome's not a very good place for you, really, because, you know, this is a place that's been eating a seed corn for about, you know, well, 1,500 years or so, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's seen some rough times, and, and and what the whole Italian peninsula right now is really struggling. Uh, but, you know, there's some, uh, this is a whole other topic we could go on for an hour on this, but there's a little bit of light there in the sense that the Italian government um, recently indicted some CIA officials uh, sort of thumbed their nose at the United States government and, and indicted some CIA officials that the U.S. Oh. government has had to uh, now essentially put them in hiding. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was quite an act of defiance by the Italian government. Well, you know, and, and defiance is, is all over Rome. You know, I, I, I just celebrate. Anytime I travel, I do this. I try to find the, the places where the, where the counterfeit goods are and where the cash economies are. Because, and of course, in Rome, it's impossible to miss. Uh, they're everywhere. And it always just gives me a kick. I, I love this idea that the official statistics don't really reveal much about about the reality on the ground. And that's really clear from Rome. I mean, a lot of businesses in operation are doing very, very well for themselves by essentially, um, you know, acts of defiance and, and disobedience. I, I don't know. You go through an experience like that, man, and, you know, just, you just think, you know, if everybody in the world complied, with everything the state wants us, the whole everything would collapse. Yeah, and it would be the end. You know, it would, it would be the end of civilization as we know it. I mean, we owe to our prosperity and our the, to the extent we experience order in our lives and innovation. We owe it so much to the impulse within certain people and classes to disobey. Yeah, exactly. That's I, you know, it's it's the most productive thing you could. You could ever do to, to enter into a kind of permanent state of non-compliance is to be a benefactor to the world. I think. Well, Jeffrey, I probably ought to wrap it up here. I've taken a lot of your time today. I really appreciate you coming on the show with me again. Well, it goes by very quickly when we're together. Um, I'm, probably everybody says this to you: you're the kind of guy you would sort of love to hang out with for like an evening or days or weeks or months or years, you know, so it's really a pleasure to be here. I'm headed out uh, tomorrow to go to Libertopia, so I, um, I'm looking forward to that event. I hope you have a lot of fun there. I, I meant to bring that up. As a matter of fact, you had the, uh, the wonderful situation where you, uh, in Las Vegas at the event there, you were able to talk uh, with John Stossel, and, and uh, that was really I, – I wish I would have remembered that earlier. I would have had you talk about that a little bit. No, no that was a fun event. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I've had a lot of opportunities recently, and it's it's been a wonderful learning experience for me, just kind of getting to know things and broadening my exposure to people and ideas. And, and this, this Libertopia thing is going to be interesting to me because I've, I've never you know, I've never been before. And I don't know much about that sort of Southern California libertarian, uh, West Coast libertarian world. So, you know, I'm going to be very much of a student there, I think. And I'm sure I'm going to have a lot to say and write about it afterwards. 
Well, maybe I'll bother you for an interview after that's all over with. That would be great, actually. I would really be happy to, to hear from you again. Jeff, uh, Jeffrey, thanks for coming on the show with me again. And folks, uh, be sure and follow the links from badquaker.com. Get over to Laissez Faire Books and check out the Laissez Faire Book Club. And if you have the means and if you'd like to make a serious impact in the liberty movement, check out the Freedom Kit Initiative over at Laissez Faire Books and, uh, and see if, if, see if it's the kind of thing that you're interested in. But like I said, it's a serious initiative. Um, thanks again, Jeffrey, and I'll talk to you later. Thank you. It's really fun to visit with you. Uh, I can't believe an hour went by so quickly. And that was my talk with Jeffrey Tucker. And, folks, thanks for listening today. And remember to go to badquaker.com, where liberty is our mission. Thank you very much, folks.